The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to The Spectator's Book Club podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and this week my guest is the historian Professor Felipe Fernandez Armesto, whose new book in the, I think the words, quincentenary of Magellan's Great Voyage is called Straits, Beyond the Myth of Magellan. But he comes, perhaps he'll dispute this characterization, but not so much to praise Magellan as to bury him. Um, The general received idea of Magellan is he was the heroic navigator who was the first person to circumnavigate the globe, that he was a a great adventurer, a chivalric figure, a a, a pioneer of the the age of exploration. And Felipe's contention in the book is that, well, he very much wasn't, that he was neither brave nor, well, he was brave, but he was not noble, that he didn't try and circumnavigate the world, let alone succeed in doing so, and that he was a thug and a failure, more or less. Is Is that a fair representation, Philip? Well, thank you, Sam, for um, summarising the book so well. I feel that perhaps you might have written it yourself and done it, <laughs> done a better job. My only quibble with what you say is that I absolutely don't want to bury him. I mean, for Christ's sake, I want people to buy the books. I want to make him more interesting by telling the truth about him. Because, you know, the truth is so much more interesting than the, the myth because it raises so many fascinating problems. The problem of why did this man's proposal ever get adopted in the first place? Because when he arrived at the Spanish court, he did so with a reputation as a traitor who knew nothing about navigation and whose sidekick, who supposedly did know something about it, was literally certifiably insane. And (laughs) if you look at it objectively, the, the whole plan just didn't make sense. So, I mean, that's one problem. And then, yeah, there's the, the problem of the, the way Magellan's been received in our world today, because usually, you know, we, we have a certain respect for, for failures. You know, the Japanese love noble failures. The British love, you know, the Dunkirk spirit. But we don't normally accord this kind of heroic status to someone who would say totally and utterly uh, a failure, and uh, I suppose a final problem, which is, makes the truth about him really Im- important to try and grasp, is that you know, we're in a world now where to be a dead white explorer is already you know, the worst thing you can have done because people want to tear down your statues and smirch your renown and so on. And yet, you know, Magellan, who was pretty much a cutthroat and pretty sort of ruthless and nasty individual has actually escaped all of that obloquy and people you know, love him and his monuments are secure and universities which are usually the sort of capitals of woke behavior are, are celebrate him and have prizes and god knows what named after him the number of commercial enterprises named after him is growing all these scientific prizes named after him and really to me very puzzling you know i want to know why that is when, if you look at the objective facts about him, they don't really support that kind of 
of reputation. I, I get, I, but I absolutely don't want to bury him because obviously we're all mixtures of virtues and vices. And, you know, Miguel and probably, you know, he was like you and me, probably had fewer virtues than you and fewer vices <laughs> than, than I. But, but, but he was a mixture like everybody else. And of course he had, you know, good points. He was heroic, he was intrepid, he was charismatic. Uh, and, and he had a sort of noble chivalric ethos, which doesn't, you know, cut ice with anybody nowadays, but which was very much the the aristocratic ethos of his his day, and he did embody it pretty faithfully. So, so you know, there are a few good things to say about him. Can I ask before we before we dive back into the world of Magellan himself? I mean, intrigued by the sort of genesis of this book and the, the way that you as you describe it and you have I think in your final chapter where you talk about the kind of Magellan myth to this age he hasn't as you say been cancelled when he was so ripe for cancellation in a way that for instance Columbus very much you know well in as much as he can be has been why do you think that is is that just because people don't know enough about him or that the legend is too attractive why why did he escape all that? Yeah, well, thank you very much for the question. I mean, I, I'm tempted. You know, I wish, I would love to say it's because people don't know the truth. But because, I, unfortunately, I can't escape from my professional vocation, my academic vocation as an historian. It gives me this kind of rather pathetic faith in the truth. Because most people don't care about the truth. Most people are emotionally invested in myths. And they really want to cling to them. And they may be, you know, the sort of old-fashioned heroic myths, they may be the contemporary mad, woke, politically correct myths, but, but people tend to care far more about those than they do about the truth. So reluctantly, I have to say that I think, you know, Magellan has escaped on the queer, not because people are ignorant of the truth, but because the myths about him have meant so much to so many people who supported them, starting with, you know, the person who really sort of originated the myth in the first place. It wasn't Magellan, you know, I mean, remember that Churchill said, uh, that, that he he was confident of the the verdict of history because he was going to write it himself, and Magellan didn't write it himself. He did employ somebody else to write it for him, and his stooge, his his spokesman, Antonio Pigafetta, wrote a, a, an extremely effective eulogy of Magellan after his death, which really set the tone for all subsequent historiographical tradition really pretty much up until now and you need to transcend that and go back to the sources and reconstruct in detail what really happened and what McGill was really like and the sort of changes the kind of trajectory that he followed uh, in his lifetime in order to escape the myth and and retrieve the truth yeah now Again, speaking of myths, I, I want to start, as you do, by framing Magellan in the world of his time, because, at, you know, again, the, the sort of vulgar apprehension is that there was, you know, this was the great age of exploration and the excitement of these sort of mighty or, or nascently mighty European empires setting out from Portugal and Spain and kind of conquering, you know, the Western world and across the Atlantic. As you represent it, really, the European powers were slightly kind of piddling in this age. 
and they only struck out west out of desperation rather than anything else. Yeah, I think if you want to understand what they were doing, because it was sort of emergent, developing country nowadays, desperately drilling, you know, for sort of offshore gas or something like that. I mean, that's that's the kind of image that you need in order to understand what drove this European outthrust or outreach or or, or conquering zeal, whatever it is you want to call it. Obviously, you know, th these guys were um, extremely weak. I mean, most of these expeditions consisted of very small numbers of ships and men, even Miguel's, which was relatively large, you know, it just wasn't up to the job that it was designed to execute. And they, you know, they were working with pre-industrial technology, which was, you know, pretty much, am I allowed to say crap on it? You're allowed. We've had worse. <laughs> really, you know, feeble technology that, again, wasn't up to the job. And economically, Europe was, and, and scientifically, technologically, Europe was a, a backwater, it was a very backward part of the world in this period compared with you know, all the, the big, rich economies, uh, all the scientific vanguard of the world was around the Indian Ocean, it was in China, it was in the Islamic world, uh, to some extent it was in, in India, and Europe was pretty much an also Ran, you know, the Chinese and the Islamic world were pretty contemptuous of Latin Christendom. They thought it was a sort of barbarian fringe, uh, which they could pretty much treat with disdain and contempt. Oh, the relatively sudden ascent of these Western European barbarians to world reshaping prominence. Uh, was an event which I think you just couldn't have predicted in the 15th century. I don't think people realize, you know, the really big expanding empires of the world in the first couple of decades of the 16th century weren't, you know, there's Spain and Portugal, they were Muscovy, they were the Ottoman Empire, they were the, the Safavids, they were the Aztecs and the Inca, very interesting, until the Spanish kind of gobbled them all up, up almost at a, a gulp. Those were the uh, empires, which if you know you've been looking at the world from a, sort of some kind of cosmic vantage point, you would have noticed their expansion because it was so, so rapid. And uh, so it's one of the big problems, unsolved problems of history really, is why, how these Europeans were able to make up ground so quickly. And I, you know, I mean, I've got various theories and suggestions about that, some of which ripple, you know, through the, the book. Though, of course, in the book, I'm really concentrating on life and work of Magellan himself. Now, something that's to which you pay a lot of attention in the book is the science of, of seafaring and the way in which you can't really understand Magellan's world without understanding, for instance, ocean currents and prevailing winds and above all, that sense of how, you know, a proper scientific question that goes back to Aristophanes, how big the world is, because there are sort of spheres of influence that's central to your story, isn't there? This, this treaty that basically divided the rest of the world between Spain and Portugal. Can you explain how that how that worked? Yes, those are very insightful questions, Sam. Thank you. So let's start with the winds and currents. You know, obviously, we're talking about the age of sail, and therefore everything that happens at sea depends on winds and currents. They really are, you know, 
shaping, you could almost say determining influences. They set absolute limits to what people can do. I think one of the things that changes in the last decade or so of the 15th century is that European navigators decide that they're going to try and sail with the winds behind them. Up until that time, you know, all the exploration that we know about by sea pretty much, uh, certainly in seas that have fixed wind systems, had happened against the wind because people were more concerned with the hope that they would get home at the end of the voyage than with the way they would find anything new. There's no point in making a new discovery unless you can get home. So counterintuitively, because nowadays yachts and always like to have the wind behind them, in those days, people sailed against the wind. And that changes in the last decade of the 15th century. And, and really the guy who's responsible for that is Columbus. He is a trendsetter and he does start things, you know, afresh. And then the sort of second part of your, your question is about the size of the world. And obviously that's critical because nobody knew how big the world was. If people had known how big the world was, they wouldn't be so stupid as to attempt, attempt a voyage like Magellan's because it was pretty obvious that you know, the, the bigger the world, the longer that voyage was going to be, and the less practical it would be. I should, I should say, we, we, we should, for, the, for those listeners who aren't immediately familiar with what Magellan was trying to do, somewhere he was, roughly, he was trying to find a way west through the Americas to go around and approach the Spice Islands, at least ostensibly, that's what the king thought he was going to do, but we'll get to that, from, from the, other, the, the other side of the world. Is that a fair summation of the idea? Exactly right. If you say, if you slightly more vaguely say, well, he was aiming for islands, you know, off the um, southeast coast of, of Asia, that, that would be an accurate thing to say. And he was heading west, so he was, he was going the long way around to try and get to this place. And so you can see the bigger the world, the less practical um, the voyage. And Miguel, I mean, actually, people had, in certain, you know, in scientific circles, people had a pretty shrewd idea about how the big the world was. But Magellan and um, other um, people, mainly for political reasons, rejected that notion and insisted on a relatively small world and Magellan was really in the tradition of Columbus. It was Columbus who who really broached this notion that perhaps the world's actually quite manageably small and that you can you can get almost everywhere relatively easily by uh, by sea. And so Magellan was following pretty very crudely he was following Columbus's formula. But I think that's the understanding that the, the, the size of the world was a matter of controversy. Other people didn't know for certain uh, how big it, it was absolutely crucial to understanding Magellan's enterprise. It wouldn't have happened if it hadn't been in the context of expectations of a small world for two reasons. One is, as we've already said, it would have been totally impractical if the world hadn't been uh, small. And it Indeed, it was impracticable because the world was too big. And the second reason is that politically, Spain and Portugal had divided the world into two spheres of navigation. 
and they didn't know on whose side these rich islands off the coast of Asia lay, which side of the dividing line between the zones of navigation of Spain and Portugal those islands lie on. Well, in, in fact, they, they lay on the Portuguese side, but if the world was small, that raised the possibility they might lie on the Spanish side, and that justified the King of Spain in his own view in putting quite a lot of finance into Magellan's project. Now, why, incidentally, again, this may be a very naive question, but it seemed to me like the Portuguese, even whether Moluccas, the location of which side of the line they fell, even if that's contested, the Portuguese had a much better deal of it because all the wealth and trade in the Indian Ocean and so forth were to the east, and that was their direction, wasn't it? Why did why did the Spanish have have the long way round in the first place? Did they negotiate that treaty at a disadvantage? No, they. Uh, I mean, I think they 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 did their best to grab what they could, but they were under the illusion that the world was much smaller than it was. Columbus was very influential at the time that treaty was negotiated. His own failures hadn't yet really sort of uh, you know broken through the news barrier. Uh, people weren't aware of how Columbus had screwed up on his own um, objectives. So he had a lot of prestige. So his idea of the world was small was pretty influential at the time the treaty was, was negotiated. And I think that's a crucial element. And the other thing is that in order to, um, uh, in order to achieve peace with Portugal, which was obviously pretty important for Spain, but the frontier, as you know, is quite long and Portuguese-Spanish conflict had been, had caused a lot of trouble for both kingdoms in the previous generation. So in order to achieve peace, the Spaniards compromised and agreed to shift the, the demarcation line um, in Portugal's favor. And as a result of that, without their knowing it, the Portuguese netted all these sort of extra goodies. Of course, one's got to remember that the, the line in, 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 in the long run actually favoured Spain, the division favoured Spain, because almost the whole of the Americas, with the exception of parts of Brazil, fell within the Spanish um, sphere of navigation. And that's why most of the Americas became part of the Spanish monarchy and not the Portuguese. Now, you know, Magellan, the Portuguese claim Magellan for Portugal, the Spanish claim Magellan for Spain. It's a big... But... You know, part of the story, before he even sets off, he grows up in the Portuguese court and then he hightails it for Castile and the King of Spain. Why does that happen and what what complexion does that put on, on the story of his voyage? Well, it, to some extent, you could say it, it was routine. It was quite a normal thing for personnel to be swapped between these two monarchies. In many ways, Spain and Portugal were and to some extent still are, you know, kind of culturally. There are certainly elements of cultural continuity and homogeneity which which span the the frontier. And there had been a lot of, you know, Spaniards who'd taken service with the King of Portugal and Portuguese who'd taken service with the King of Spain. But I think in Magellan's case, there was a lot of, you know, extra and kind of personal stuff going on that made him betray his native kingdom. In order to understand Miguel, you've got to start from the fact that he's an orphan. His parents die when he's young. 
he comes from a minor noble family on the edge of the kingdom, right up in the the north. Uh, he's down on his luck. He's got no money. He's brought up at court, really, in order to be a squire in the service of the king and in order to fight in the king's wars. Uh, and obviously, you know, he, you just say, well, why was he great <laughs> for that? But he wasn't. He had a chip on his shoulder. He didn't feel that life had dealt him a good deal. And I think he, he, he retreated into a sort of fantasy world. He read, as almost all, you know, modestly literate people at the time did, he read what I call the station bookstall or airport bookstall pulp fiction of the time, which was tales of chivalric romance. And they all, they're all the same. They're all about, you know, a hero who's down on his luck and he has an adventure, usually goes to sea, conquers islands or, you know, overcomes monsters or savages. And the usual fade out is he becomes a great ruler uh, and sometimes he marries a, a princess. So that was the the, that was Magellan's escape route from this world which he found so unsatisfactory, so, so hostile to his own social ambitions, his own conception of himself. So you could say that he went to Spain in order to get the chip off his shoulder. He wasn't satisfied with what the King of Portugal offered him, and he went to Spain in order to get a better deal. Indeed, he did. He was, in the, to that extent, he was triumphant at that moment. Everything seemed to be going well. It's really only once he gets the King of Spain's patronage that everything starts falling apart for him again. Yes. I mean, that business of, of the books that he was reading, there is a sense that seems to run through your whole book that actually Magellan's a sort of victim of literary genre and that literary genre indeed is what's made his myth you know that the, the whole thing is a sort of self-mythologizing and the people who followed mythologized him in a way and that the, the descriptions even of the of the people they meet in South America as being giants is is shaped by a set of sort of literary apprehensions that kind of yeah. overlay the material reality yes I mean you know well you could say well of course Felipe would say this because he's one of these bloody intellectuals you know but <laughs> I think you're what you read you know and that that um, if you if you're susceptible to the influence of literature then you do become what you read what you read forms you far more you know than your real experiences <laughs> You become, you know, sort of a product of your own fantasies. I think that's a very normal thing to happen to people who read too much. And, and it, I think it's what happened to, to Magellan. I think he modelled himself on these fictional heroes. And I mean, I'm not saying that experience didn't affect him, obviously it did. I mean, that's being out in the East fighting wars for Portugal in India and in the Straits of Malacca, all of that, you know, sort of gave him this sort of vision of the East that animated his ambitions, uh, his experience of childhood, his, his, his orphandom, his experience of court, all of that gave him his chip on his shoulder. But the way he saw his life developing the way he saw as a route of escape from the dissatisfactions of his life was absolutely taken from literature. He read really basically two types of literature, as far as we can tell. One is the chivalric romance, 
as you rightly say, that was also the source of a lot of this imagery of monsters and giants and stuff that affected people as they they penetrated unknown parts of the world. And the other stuff he read was travel literature, most of which was extremely un reliable and, uh, and also so, you know, calculated to give you unrealistic um, ambitions. I guess what I, I suppose I should say that, you know, it's very understandable that when you're going off on a voyage like that which Magellan led into and across the Pacific, and where you're penetrating parts of the world of which you've no re reliable earlier reports where as far as you know, no one has ever been and left a record of what they'd done. And when you meet these people, you know, who are unprecedented in European experience, and when you have environments, you know, that challenge all your assumptions no one has ever seen before, how do you understand what you see? You, you know, you, this is basic sort of psychology. Really. You, you, you map what you see and what you experience onto what you already think you know. And of course, that comes from your reading because no one's ever experienced it before. So there's nowhere else for it to come from. So, of course, you know, what he read really reshapes his experience in his mind. And I think does the same for everybody who was on the voyage with him. Now, one of the sort of cruxes of the book, it seems to me, is that you, you have a sort of idea that what the king thought Magellan was up to was not necessarily exactly what Magellan thought Magellan was up to. And he struck this deal, didn't he, as part of his contract for this voyage, that he would, I, th I think I'm, I'm, I may be misremembering the numbers, but that he said, you know, if we find more than five islands... I get a percentage of, of any islands surplus to five. Yes, that's right, yes. And he knew there were five islands in the Moluccas. So you think this was his hidden agenda, is that right? Well, I think that's pretty much the proof that he was looking for something else as well. Uh, and, and that something else meant a lot more to him than the Moluccas did. I mean, these islands, Moluccas were very important islands because they produced these three spices, nutmeg, mace, basically different parts of the same plant, and cloves. Three spices which were, in terms of value of price per unit of bulk, the most valuable commodities in the world at the time. So these islands were really important economically. But Magellan knew that if he, even if he got that, he wouldn't really be able to exploit them because he knew that the Portuguese were already effectively in control of that trade. And to break into it with a small Spanish force, 8,000 miles away, whatever it turned out to be from home, I mean, that was obviously not on the cards. Um, so I don't think he was ever really serious. The reason he proposed the Moluccas was he knew the king would respond to that. You know what it's like when you're pitching, you know, for a grant or for a business proposal. You tell the client, you tell the patron what he or she wants to hear. <laughs> so, so you say, well, I'm going to do X because you know that X is going to get you the money. That's going to the investment is going to come from. But it doesn't mean that that's what you're really intending to do in your own heart and mind. And I think it's pretty obvious from, uh, you know, a lot of ancillary evidence of what he was really after for himself 
was a foothold in the Philippines. I mean, those were islands which were, you know, fabled in Malacca and when he was living there in 1511, when his, his ideas, his plans took shape. He knew about the Philippines. He knew that they had a lot of attractive features. They were close to China and China was, you know, the big economy that everybody wanted to break into. They, they produced gold, uh, which was the commodity that everybody wanted because you know, whatever else you've got, if you've got gold, you know, at least you can buy other stuff. And uh, it was, you know, it still is in a way a sort of universal currency. And then, um, you know, finally he knew because he had a lot of information about the Philippines and there were Filipino exiles in Malacca. He knew that the islands were very divided politically and there were opportunities there for inserting yourself into the existing networks of power and becoming one of these, these heroes of romance, becoming a great great lord. Maybe, you know, he, if he'd completed his vision of himself, he would have, his story would have ended like that of so many of these romantic, chivalric, fictional heroes, and he would have married a, a local princess. But of course, he, his story didn't have the happy ending that most of those, <laughs> those, those books had. A very sticky ending, in fact. But, but when he set off on it, I mean, the, as you describe it, the, the sort of mini fleet he assembles in a sort of public-private partnership between the king and this very you know, well-heeled financier who helps to, to kit it out. It's kind of amazingly substantial, wealthy, well-stocked. I mean, even a sort of live cow on each ship to provide them with milk, which is a detail of how fascinating. But he sets off with, with you know, quite the arma mini armada, and yet... You know, almost immediately, he seems to do for himself by by refusing to tell anyone where they're going. I mean, this gets him in trouble very soon. But why is it that he he shares nothing with his his co-commanders and so forth? Well, he remarked to a Portuguese agent just before he sailed uh, that once he was at sea, he would be able to do what he liked. Now, obviously, you know, we're in a period where once you're at sea, once you're you're out of reach of the sort of pinnaces that would bring you your daily mail in the early, uh, not the newspaper, I mean your daily post, in the <laughs> early days of your voyage, um, once you were beyond reach of those, you know, you really were in a little world of your own. And Magellan's hope was that he would be able to assert his own personal authority over the fleet and do what he liked with it. And that meant that he had to sideline the royal nominees, the king's agents, the guys on the voyage who had been appointed by Magellan's enemies, all of his rivals for command had to be sidelined. And I think that was, you know, that was his, his objective. I think he deliberately provoked disagreements with his subordinate commanders in order to give himself uh, an excuse for taking action against them. One of the first things that he, he does is he sort of manufactures a showdown with his co-commander and claps him in arms. <laughs> and then, then, you know, when the, when the other subordinate officers rebel and they mutiny against him, uh, he has them garroted or marooned. <laughs> and he, he was a calculated risk, you know, because of, obviously he, he could have lost those 
those conflicts, but I think it suited him to have them because unless he had full command of the fleet, he wouldn't have been able to do what he wanted, which was go to the, the Philippines. He would have had to follow the king's orders and go to Malacca if, the, if his, his rival commanders had been breathing down his neck all the time. So I, I mean, I'm, I'm not saying that, that, that certain because the evidence doesn't allow one to be absolutely dogmatic about it. But that, to me, is the best interpretation I can put on the way he behaved in the early stages of the voyage. Now, another turning point, you know, once he's overcome this, this arguably manufactured mutiny, he finds his way across the Atlantic to the you know, coast of what we now think of sort of South America. And he's making his way down the coast and it's getting colder and it's getting towards winter, and they're running out of all the stuff they need. Why is it that he doesn't turn back? Because people are saying, even among his own retinue, are saying, aren't they, look, <laughs> you know, we're on a hiding to nothing. Even if we find this strait, we won't be able to get through it. Yes, exactly. And even if they did get through it, you know, they'd already spent so long <laughs> looking for it that they were most unlikely, you know, to be able to make a commercial success of the voyage. Even if the world turned out to be as small as Magellan was hoping, it would still, you know, have been a failure. The voyage would obviously have been a failure by that point. And, and the decision to spend the winter on the coast of Patagonia, which was the, the decision which provoked the, the really big mutiny and led to all the sort of garroting and marooning, I think that that decision to spend the, the winter in port just kind of showed the impractical, impracticality of the entire mission. Because obviously if they spend a winter in port, that, that's adding, it's only months to the voyage, imperiling their supplies and corroding the morale of the, uh, of the men. Um, the reason Magellan did it was that he, you know, he, 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 he wasn't following the king's orders from day one. You know, he was following his own agenda. And obviously it didn't matter if he got to the Philippines, it wouldn't matter about you know all the costs of the voyage and all the length of time it took because he would still be able, at least he hoped, that he would be able to found a sort of fief of his own uh, and make a kind of conquest and establish his authority in the islands or somewhere in the, the islands if he if he got there. So it was, it, the, the strategy doesn't look sensible from the point of view of the mission with which he was confided, but it wasn't irrational against the background of what Magellan himself was secretly intending. Yeah. Now, to, to everybody's surprised he did get through the strait, because I think, as you say, the strait was, they discovered the strait, they got through it, and there was, you know, it's the, the winds and currents come from completely the wrong direction for navigation in that direction. And, and it's more or less, was hundreds of years until in the age, it was only in the age of steam, I think you say, that it actually becomes even vaguely commercially navigable to make any sense. Is that right? Yes, that's right. Until the age of steam, the only person who, who got through the straits really um, quickly and without disaster was Francis Drake. <laughs> Anyway, he was just sort of, I, 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 am I allowed on the spectator 
podcast to call him a jammy bugger because he, <laughs> he he was just he was just extremely lucky because he was he was born by a freak wind but basically you know that straight the straight of a gallon is like a wind tunnel with the wind in the wrong direction <laughs> so you're always you know struggling to get through it as indeed Magellan's expedition or such of it was was left by that time struggled to get through it and it is a rather I don't know dramatic and exciting story because you know not only are they having all these conflicts and mutinies but but also you know they're contending against nature and they're surrounded by this totally unfamiliar environment and there are these towering you know cliffs of ice and these strange beasts sort of penguins and sea lions yapping at them I, I it's a very uh, it must have been you know very challenging experience in every in every respect and of course when they get to the the end of the passage through the the strait and Magellan kind of announced rather interestingly he he consults his fellow commanders or such of them as he hasn't killed or even deserted by this time he's, he has this con- consultation with them in which they they decide whether they're going to go go can continue the voyage or not and of course you know they're all saying no let's go back we, at least you know we've we've, we've done something we found this strait at least we can go home in honor now and we'd be mad to Continue, and of course, Magellan just doesn't take any notice of any um, animadversions. He he's already failed, and having failed, he drives the expedition on to a predictable disaster. You know, in a way, you're torn between admiration for this his sort of sans froid et You know, I mean, he his his recklessness, courage, which is which is of the dimensions of recklessness on the one hand, and on the other, you know, you're baffled in a way by how he how he got a, away with it. I guess by that time, he'd, he'd eliminated so many of his recalcitrant subordinates that people decided they would just go along with him. Well, there is, a, I mean, there was a sort of exciting and baffling moment when, as you say, you know, they've come onto what they think is going to be essentially a kind of narrow stretch of ocean before they reach the Malacca Islands or the Philippines. And, you know, he's just discovered the Pacific Ocean and they're heading, I think, northwest and the currents and winds carry you beautifully in that direction. But they must they, they couldn't quite believe how long they were in open ocean for and how fast they were travelling, could they? I mean, it must have felt like the world went on forever. Yes, it's kind of, I mean, it's a, it's a very tragic story and, and you know, you can't help but be moved by this, this terrible irony, this terrible paradox at the heart of it, which is that once they're in the Pacific, as you say, they've now at last they've got a favorable wind. And they've got this what I call this unremitting wind driving them on. And they're all saying, Oh, well, thank God, you know, at last now we've got the wind behind us. The irony is that it just keeps blowing them on and on through this vast, empty sea. And men are dying on a, a, a regular basis. The rations are running out. By the time they, they sight land, they, they're, they're reduced literally you know, to chewing on leather that they've stripped from the lining of the masts because they haven't got anything to eat. Pigafetta says, you know, that a rat sold for 12 ducats or something. I can't remember the exact um, figure. 
Um, now, if you were lucky enough to get one, <laughs> so and 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 of course they're chewing on this leather with gums swollen by scurvy because of course you know they had no vitamin C for for months, and and strangely, <laughs> it, it's this unremitting wind that's driven them to this terrible extremity. So that's the irony. At last they've got favorable weather and it takes them deeper into disaster. Uh, but they do find the Philippines, don't they? So he was a success, at least on, on his own terms. Yes, he found um he found the the Philippines, but you know, as so often with you know your heart's desire, it turns out, you know, not to be quite as you were hoping. And I think when when McGillan gets the film, he does do some you know impressive things. He manages to control the trade in gold. He manages to stop his his men, you know, bringing the price of gold up by reckless trading. He's very he's very focused on the you know the realities of the the market. And so in a way I mean in the sense of not wanting the locals to to realize how badly the Europeans want the gold. Absolutely, that's the whole point. So keep the price low, don't, don't show any interest. Don't, 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 above all, you know, don't start trading cheap stuff for, 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 um, uh, for gold. And I think it's remarkable that he manages to control his, his men in that respect. So his economic policy seems to be pretty good when he's in the Philippines, but his political strategy is an utter hopeless catastrophe. You see, I think he senses, and I, I, I think he was right about this, that the Philippines are sort of ripe for a political revolution. These islands are all you know, divided amongst lots of different petty rulers, rajas, as they, they called them, who are all, you know, sort of competing with each other. Many of them are at war with one another. And Miguelin gets a sense that the, these islands are ripe for political unification. And what he really needs to do is he needs to find a candidate, he needs to find one of these Rajas to back as the potential unifier, political unifier of the, the islands. And that's his, his strategy. Where it goes completely haywire is that he just chooses the wrong guy. I mean, he chooses a relatively weak and feeble Raja. And in order to promote this guy's potential as the unifier of the islands, Magellan has got to confront a much more powerful rival. And that's that's really the, the moment at which his doom is sealed because he doesn't have the resources to take on the most powerful of the local rulers or one of the more powerful local, local rulers. And it's in that encounter that he dies. But at this stage, I mean, we're running, we should sort of wrap up relatively soon, but I, I just was intrigued by how you read the fact that this man is obviously a very worldly figure, a figure very animated by ideas of sort of, you know, pulp fiction, chivalric romance. He suddenly starts to become a little bit messianic. I mean, he starts, kind of, I mean, do you feel he does a sort of Mr. Kurtz? I mean, has he taken leave of his senses and become you know, kind of nuts by that stage. Well, I certainly think there are lots of parallels with Kurtz, yeah. Um, but of course, that's because 
when Kurtz, when Conrad created the character of Kurtz, he was drawing, you know, on what he knew about the history of European exiles on these sort of crazy, uh, unfamiliar, savage, if you like, in inverted commas, frontiers. And, and these experiences, I mean, you just imagine what the experience of getting to the Philippines was like. It's bound to change you. You know, I mean, one of my quarrels, really, with earlier my predecessors amongst biographers of Galen is that they all you know, create this rather sort of static figure, um, this, this, this heroic figure, and it never seems to change. Of course, you know, life isn't like that. We all change in the course of our lives, and we change more if we lead these kind of searing, you know, traumatic lives, such as, as Magellan led. And I, you know, and I think it's not unusual for us, if I may make so bold as to use that term, it's not unusual for us to turn to God when things go wrong. You know? and, and I think in the, I think a lot of changes happened to Magellan. First of all, you know, in the early stages of his voyage, you can see him getting much more ruthless. And at the end of the voyage, you can see him getting much more religious. And he, I think you're right to imply that it was a sort of crackpot religiosity. I think, I think he does go pretty bonkers. Uh, he, he, he sets himself up as a sort of prophet and, um, and, and preacher, uh, and he takes it upon himself to instruct these, these Filipino indigenous people in Christianity, Christianity, which actually Magellan knew virtually nothing about. You know, he, was a, he was a very secular individual. I think his Christian doctrine was pretty um, haywire, but he takes this upon himself. He, he literally you know, excludes the priests who were still alive on the expedition from any role, really serious role in this evangelization. He tries to do it all, all himself. I, I, I think this is um, you know, a desperate measure. He's failed in his worldly ambitions, and so he turns to God and takes up this evangelizing role. Of course, that doesn't really succeed either, and he's left by the end of his life with a, a total abject sense of having failed. Indeed, I think, you know, by the, the end of his life, he knows that his ambitions are thwarted but he can't do what he wants. He can't create his fief in the Philippines. And of course, he can't go back to Spain because he's disobeyed the king's orders. He's killed all these, these servants and, and, and protégés of the, the monarch. And if he went back to Spain, the, the most he could hope for was disgrace. And you know, he'd probably have had his head chopped off. And instead, we remember him as a hero. Well, he's remembered with much more complexity and interested human life in your new book. Uh, Felipe Fernandez Armesto, thank you very much indeed for your time. This is very kind of you, Sam. Great treat to talk to you.